You're sitting in the theater, watching a performance of The Tempest. Simon Russell Beale is Prospero. I would incline to sleep. <laughs> just a good dullness. And give it away. Miranda has just laid down at Prospero's feet as he picks up a staff and summons his Trixie spirit servant. I'm ready now. Approach my aerial. Come. But as you sit there, what you see in front of you is not a live actor. Grave, sir. Hey. Instead, a hologram with wispy, ephemeral arms and legs, but with the face of actor Mark Quartley, floats and tumbles over Prospero's head. To fly, to swim, to dive into the fire, to ride on the curled clouds. The king's ship appears against the theater's back wall, and at the appointed time, as Ariel floats above it, he bursts into flames. On the topmast, the yards and bowsprits would I flame distinctly, then meet and join. Jove's lightning, the precursors of the dreadful thunderclaps. As you watch, you wonder to yourself, is this the future of live theater? From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. This podcast is called My So Potent Art. As we're recording this, the Royal Shakespeare Company is in rehearsal for the remounting of a remarkable production of The Tempest that premiered in Stratford-upon-Avon in 2016. It featured special effects created by The Imaginarium, the performance capture company co-founded by Andy Serkis that's best known for the dazzling animations it makes for movies and video games. This Tempest production was the first time their particular type of magic has ever been used in a production of Shakespeare. We asked the RSC's artistic director, Gregory Duran, who's directing the production, to come in and talk to us about how he meshed 21st century wizardry with the 17th century kind. Greg was joined by Ben Lumsden, who is Imaginarium's head of studio. Greg and Ben were interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Well, let's start with you, Greg. Uh, what went into your decision to explore a new high-tech direction with this production? Well, we knew that we had the 400th anniversary of uh, Shakespeare's death coming up in 2016. And we saw this, uh, you know, two or three, well, in fact, three or four years out. And we wanted there to be something very special to end the year. And I decided that I would look at Shakespeare's last solely authored play, The Tempest. Um, But what's always struck me about The Tempest are the challenges of creating that magic uh, on the stage. And I had, for a long time, been quite obsessive about the inspiration that Shakespeare must have derived from the Jacobean masks of his period at court. And Greg, even though this is a Shakespeare podcast and a lot of us know what a Jacobean mask is, remind us again. Yes. Um, well, a mask, it's, a, it's really a court performance 
created specifically to entertain the king and his court, but it's really a series of court hieroglyphics in order to uh, establish certain principles of the magnificence of kingship, and everything was in service to that. So these court masks, um, I discovered, were real spectacular multimedia events with you know lighting effects, stage machinery that could deliver a chariot through clouds, the, the lighting effects in the, you know, the, the Mask of Blackness, which was the first one that Queen Anne commissioned, had a curtain dropped and a whole sea gushed forward, sort of two huge life-size seahorses seemed to be uh, pounding through the waves and on their backs were the gods Oceanus and Niger with their sort of azure and gold and uh, behind that was the a huge concave shell was drawn in in which sat Queen Anne and her ladies. You know one of these masks, the mask of Oberon, delivered the prince himself in a chariot drawn by live polar bears so you know these were really expensive events That sounds cinematic. Yeah. I mean, really astonishing events. So clearly when Shakespeare is writing The Tempest, he is referencing this new media, if you like. And so instead of saying to my team, look, we're going to recreate a Jacobean mask from 1606 or 1610, I thought, I said to them, what would be the cutting edge technology now? And Sarah Ellis, who is our head of our digital uh, work here at Stratford, she sent me a clip, a YouTube clip. um, And it was of the CEO of Intel doing a pitch at a conference in Las Vegas and onto a screen behind him swam this huge whale. Audience clap and he says, but what if it could do this? And the whale turned to face the screen, swam through the screen and over the audience's heads. And I just went, I want that. That's what I want for The Tempest. <laughs> and uh, rather, with, with great chutzpah, I have to say, Sarah uh, said, well, she took me at my, uh, my word and she, she phoned customer services in Intel and said, how do I get to speak to the chief executive office officer? And uh, She just called the main number at Intel? She just called. She just called the customer services number to find out who <laughs> how, how she got through. Great, great initiative. And essentially, we then approached Intel formally and said, "Look, we would like to do something very special. We need to really look at the new technology. And would you be interested in doing that?" And that was the point where we invited uh, the Imaginarium Studios, Andy Zirkis and and Ben Lumsden's team. Right, and Ben, when when uh, they when when the RSC finally got to you and said, we want a whale flying over people's heads, basically. Were you immediately on board? Because you guys, you use motion capture in film and in entertainment uh, settings. It had never been done in live theater before, right? Uh, Well, it had been done a couple of times, but not to the extent and not having a principal character as a real part of the action being a computer graphic live on stage. And so that, for you know, as a technological first, that was very exciting. But Primarily, um, Andy comes from a theatrical background and his whole 
ethos is to try and use performance capture across all media. Um, so he had always wanted to do a project like this. So it seemed like a dream come true to to get to work on this project. Greg, before we get into the process of designing this, I am curious how you how the audience figured into your decision to develop this technology for the 400th anniversary. W- was this also a way for you to draw on a younger and, and more tech-oriented theater goers, or did you not think that in, in those uh, kind of business terms? That kind of came next in our thinking, certainly, because, you know, I, one of the things we had set out to do in everything we were doing in 2016 was to reach new audiences. So The Tempest was a natural progression uh, in that program to attract an audience who kind of, you know, young kids who are completely familiar with all the digital stuff, all the technology that that surrounds that, and are excited by avatars and all the computer-generated imagery that we have today, but never perhaps have seen that live on stage. So does that mean that even if you hadn't been producing The Tempest, you would have gone to this place? You would have tried tried to innovate with this technology, or was it something inherent to the Tempest that you were responding to? To me, it always, and I think Ben would back this up, it was all our work was always to say, how does this serve this play? You could say we could have done Midsummer Night's Dream like that. That would have been great. All the fairies, as you know, in some kind of virtual world. But we chose the Tempest because of those particular challenges, and because. I think it is a play that you often go and see and and there's a sort of tick box where you go, oh, I see that's how they're doing the storm or that's how they're doing Ariel and okay, here's the mask. It has a series of challenges that you you have to deliver the, the magic that is in people's heads when they read the play. If in Naples I should report this now, would they believe me? If I should say I saw such islanders for certes, these are people of the island who, though they are of monstrous shape, yet note their manners are more gentle, kind, than of our human generation you shall find many, nay, almost any. Well, let's talk about the actual uh, technology. And and Ben, if you could help us envision it, describe it for us, what we see on the stage. How does the motion capture work and what does it look like? Crucially, uh, Mark is on stage. Yeah, this is Mark Quartley. This is yes. Mark Quartley as Ariel. And, and so traditionally, motion capture has been done with optical systems, which means that you have an array of cameras which fire out a near-infrared light and reflect back off various different positions on, on the body with uh, ping-pong balls, if you like, a lot of people. You see these unitards and various balls on uh, the joint positions of the actors. But we inverted that technology and used an inertial technology with 17 sensors on the different joints, and we streamed that information into a virtual mark, and then we used that virtual mark to puppeteer a virtual aerial. Okay, um, and just so just so everyone can can picture this, sure. uh, Mark Quartley is wearing a kind of suit where you see kind of skeletal, not really skeletal, it looks more like veins running all the way through a skeletal frame, and the suit itself is kind of green. It it has a kind of uh, aqua kind of sea creature feeling to it. Exactly, and that's a that's a skin tight costume, and then the various different forms again very much dependent on what how the text describes them, are all conjured as an avatar projected on various different surfaces around the theatre using 27 projectors. Which means when he moves, you, you see him projected. When the actor moves, you see the avatar move. Exactly. Pro- the projection of it. And you, you kind of see his facial 
features as well. That's right. Yeah, you could think of it as a, as a form of digital puppetry, if you like. There's quite a lot of similarities in the way that you have Mark essentially digitally puppeteering his avatar. And then the facial expressions, we puppeteered for one specific moment in the show where he's transformed at Prospero's request into a, a terrifying harpy. You are free men of sin, whom destiny that hath the instrument this lower world and what is in it, the never surfeited sea hath caused to belch up you. And on this island, where man doth not inhabit, you amongst men being most unfit to live, I have made you mad. Ariel appears as a, as a terrifying kind of giant dragon, this, this harpy. Yes, and at that point, Mark drives the harpy's face as well as this horrific vision and that's sort of the biggest computer graphic that's used in the show. Yeah, that's really shocking. There's also these two big cylinders that you project onto, the vortex and also yes. the cloud. The- what was, became really interesting, it created a principle very early on that having Mark, the actor on the stage, clearly, uh, and the avatar projected on the, what we call the cloud, which was a sort of uh, a cylinder of sort of mesh, if you like, with, with smoke pumping through it. So it gave a, you could project onto this, this wonderful cloud that could move around the stage. I believe that... If you could just see the avatar, but you didn't see the actor uh, manipulating the puppeteer, as it were, puppeteering the puppet, then you very quickly lost interest in the puppet. I had learned that from a... I did a production of Venus and Adonis, which we did with the Little Angel Theatre in Islington in London, which had wonderful puppets, but you saw the puppeteers manipulating the puppets. And that was what allowed you to buy into the puppet. You were complicit in an act of theatre. That's really interesting, because in that you mean there was a live element, that if you remove the puppeteer... And you exactly. just have the puppet, it seems like, oh, I might as well be what this is like a movie, only not quite as good. It lost any sense of spontaneity. So it wasn't right. a live performance if the live actor wasn't there because it could just be it could just be a projection and therefore the projection there was no jeopardy because the, apart from the fact that the you know the projection could stop it didn't allow you to invest your belief in that avatar, that projected puppet. And that was a very crucial decision very early on. Well, and how did you go about designing the look of Ariel? Well, there were certain appearances where Ariel himself is charged with changing his shape and appearing as something else. So at one point, he appears rather strangely as a sea nymph. Say what? What shall I do? Oh, make thyself like a nymph of the sea. Be subject to no sight but thine and mine, invisible to every eyeball else. Go take this shape and hither come in. Go hence with diligence. So Ariel turns into this absolutely ravishing-looking 
creature um, that is half a sort of anemone, half sort of seaweed and, and half a beautiful woman. Um, and then later on, he's called upon to terrify this, the sailors by appearing as this, uh, this cross between an eagle and a woman. Um, so uh, there were times when the uh, Ariel had to take on these other, other forces. And what was amazing was to be able to hone these different images using all sorts of inspiration, whether that was seaweed or um, a particular kind of species of vulture that we wanted as the basis of the of the harpy, for instance. Well, Ben, jump in here. How, when you got charged with making a kind of vulture-like aerial, where did you look for inspiration? How, how did you go about designing that? Well, Sylvia, Sylvia Bartley, our, our character art director, worked very closely with Stephen Brimson Lewis, the designer of the show, and they, they together looked at inspiration from all sorts of places, like Greg said. They, they had a, a shared Pinterest board. They would sort of send the more disgusting image, the better, back and forth. Um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, there was, there was uh, a few different designs which early on which were fascinating, um, which took inspiration from the uh, Body Works exhibition where the skin is peeled off to reveal the human anatomy. And that computer graphic never made it into the final character design of the, I don't know of if that's the, a good or a bad thing. Of the computer graphic, <laughs> but it was the inspiration for the costume that you described earlier, the yes. skin-tight suit that Mark wore. And um, uh, he does sort look of, flayed, that's yeah, true. Yeah, sort of slightly revealing his anatomy underneath. Um, but but it was a long process of, of back and forth between Sylvia and Stephen and then taking that look with our other artists in order to experiment with how the final render would look projected. And again, that's a whole separate thing because you play with different looks and aesthetics on a computer monitor and as soon as you project it, it it has a whole different life of its own and and we played with a few different projection surfaces and we always were looking to get the ethereal nature of Ariel who is a spirit do you get that spirit and ethereal nature from the pixels or from the projection surface and in the end it was very much the projection surface which which uh, the fa- the favored one was mosquito net so uh, which really captured the light and also together with the smoke as greg was describing inside the cloud broke it up and gave ariel a sort of a mystical otherworldly quality otherworldly as opposed to just i i'm looking at a video game here yeah. And, and, you know, one of the most important things for, for me was those moments when Ariel is called upon by Shakespeare to be a synonym for a harpy or whatever. But also um, what was brilliant was looking at other elements in the text where, for instance, where Prospero reminds Ariel when he gets a bit moody that when he came to the island 12 years ago, he had Ariel had been locked inside a cloven pine by the witch Sycorax. And what we were able to do was to create for Ariel a sort of sense memory of what it was like when he was trapped and metamorphosed, if you like, into that pine tree. And for thou wast a spirit too delicate to act her earthly and abhorred commands, refusing her grand hests, she did confine me into a cloven pine, within which rift imprisoned thou didst painfully remain a dozen years, within which space she died and left thee there the team at Imaginarium created this extraordinary 
creature that was Mark Courtley, recognizably Mark Courtley as Ariel, but he'd turned into a sort of knotty, wrinkled, bark-ridden creature projected into the center of this tree. And then when Prospero banished that memory, um, the whole tree could disappear and Ariel could be released from the pine one more time. Could not again undo, it was mine art when I arrived and heard thee that made gate the pine and let thee out. I thank thee, master. Thou more murmurest, I will rend an oak and peg thee in his knotty entrails till I was howled away twelve winters. Pardon, master. In other words, what I'm saying is I think we were able to enhance the text occasionally with a visual imagery um, just to tell the story and define those extraordinary images that Shakespeare writes in in a way that amplified it. And that's a really delicate balance and that, that anticipates the question I wanted to ask you which is how did you think or adjust the technology so it didn't take over the whole production? It's always, it was an, always a balance. It was always a conversation we were having. Um, I had a originally thought that that Ariel would remain as an avatar through the whole uh, production. And it was the first time we worked in their studios in in Ealing. And we brought Simon uh, Russell Beale, who was playing Prospero and Mark Courtley together. We tried experiments where Simon interacted with the avatar floating in the air. And we sort of realized that that itself as magnificent as it was in its first iteration, very quickly the conversation, it it wouldn't hold it for the whole time. So it was constantly negotiating what best told the story and what best served the play. Ben, what were the negotiations like for you? Were were you ever in the position where you'd say, well, we could do this, but maybe we should dial it down? (laughs) Um, Well, very much we were sensitive to Greg's artistic interpretation, which was that we should always be in service to the text. And that's, you know, that was always the starting point. And um, it was really important that that we were able to take uh, sort of the tools and knowledge that we would use in video games or in films or TV and computer graphics and visual effects into the, the theatrical world and not be a huge burden during the technical rehearsal process. So, so it was absolutely of crucial importance to make sure that all of our technology was going to be able to be driven by the the theatrical team and the RSC's in-house team. And, you know, it was as if we were, to begin with, as if we were both speaking different languages. Um, And, of course, you know, from Ben's point of view and Ben's world, um, they could go, yeah, that's okay for now, we'll we'll fix that in post, uh, uh, I think is the phrase. Um, And, of course, you can't fix it in post. You've got to get it right that night, and then it's got to carry on being right for the entire run. Well, how did integrating the technology influence your whole directing process? Greg, because I imagine it's completely different. You have a rehearsal phase where you don't have tech. You know, people don't have the tech to, to the images to, to bounce off of. Well, do you know, we all thought it was going to be a really complicated process. But in fact, they sort of happened in two different rooms in a way, in that the way that we rehearsed the scenes between Ariel and uh, Prospero, we often did with, instead of having the avatar, we would use Mark and the his understudy, Caleb Frederick, who was uh, would play the avatar so that Simon could interact with 
you know, the real person of Caleb as the avatar, and Mark could, as it were, puppeteer. So actually, you know, in, in the end, it was like a normal rehearsal process with actors you know, in a bare room using make-believe. And then the process alongside that was a very complicated process of working out all the technology. We would set the pattern in the rehearsal room, for instance, of where what we might call the blocking of, of, of where Ariel would be at a certain time so that then we could work out what projection screen Simon would be looking at in order to interact with, with the avatar. But in the end, the play... The heart, the beating heart of the play, had to be the relationships, the text, and the relationship between the actors, and and you know the the beating heart of it, and and the magnificence of the technology could only enhance that if it was true at the centre. It is always a question with these kind of effects when things are going to inevitably go wrong. So I have to ask you, you know, what, what's been your greatest, uh, your most memorable? Uh, screw up. <laughs> there was a moment in, a, was it the dress rehearsal bed? I can't remember, where, where Ariel had a distinct um, list to the right. I, something had happened with the <laughs> calibration and, and he took on a, he did, a, he did, it looked very unwell at one point. <laughs> I do remember yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, as soon as you get a slightly off calibration, then the, you know, uh, you, you might have a leg that's going the wrong way or a head that's twisted the wrong way. So it was nail biting. I have to tell you, Barbara, it was it was a real nail biting speaker on many occasions. But we were doing, you know, the point was this was absolutely brand new. You know, I, I learned uh, to call this not cutting edge technology, but bleeding edge technology. It's that raw, that fresh. And, and we were also delighted. The, the very special nature of the technology being that there was no latency at all between the actions that Mark did on the stage and the action that the avatar did above him. So there was no delay between the two. And what was amazing about that technology and what we real how cutting edge we realized it were was we discovered that Lady Gaga had been trying to get the same technology and we'd beat her. We'd got there before her, so we thought that's really, that is bleeding edge. <laughs> oh, that is a feather in your cap to beat out Lady that? Gaga. So, Ben, is your phone ringing off the hook uh, with theater companies wanting to do this? Is this what we're going to see in, in live theater? There have, been a few, there have been a few calls, and I think that it's definitely going to be the future. I mean, I think, crucially, the, the price point is coming down with motion capture as a whole, and so the barrier for entry is, is that much lower and 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 i think it's great that we've sort of broken new ground and that lots of others will follow in our wake the the inertial suits now there was a kickstarter campaign where those sorts of inertial mocap systems are now available for a thousand dollars or less and the rendering technology that we used the video games engine technology is free for use um, in non-video games uses so there's absolutely the tools for for other artists and technicians to do the same and and i know of a couple of projects that are out there already doing it um but i'm sure that over the next couple of years we'll see we'll see lots more well greg I, we've heard your excitement about this but where, where do you see this going because we, we do see uh in theater this movement towards immersive theater theatrical experiences that's that's more like virtual reality or a virtual reality video game in uh, through the stage or in 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 theatrical spaces I can see how it opens up doors for directors, but I can also see that you might have concerns about how it 
might detract or perhaps make it less likely for young audiences to have the the patience for just you know people live human yeah. beings talking well, to each other you know other on i stage. think at stratford and, and here at the rsc we're always about the live actor on the stage connecting with a live audience we're aware that technology is moving on and there are all sorts of different ways of reaching that audience and indeed of ex- of exploring that experience uh, to me it will always be about the spoken word and you know the use of this technology the the ex- the experiment if you like of working with intel and with the imaginarium studios was partly to kind of go here is an amazing toolbox other people will use it in different ways we will always use it in a way that is specific to that Shakespeare play and will create that magic in the context in which it is required but I think there's room for both you know there's there's room for something that's very simple and stripped down and and two planks and a passion and there's room for innovative new technology as well and I think Shakespeare clearly was demonstrating that by tapping into the magic of the Jacobean masks at at, at the banqueting house at Whitehall that he presumably had attended so to me it's a brave new world and and an exciting one I I, I think uh, we shouldn't be too concerned about that. And coming at your question from another angle, Barbara, the emergence of virtual reality, mixed reality, augmented reality, there's a language there that is still being explored. And it's an unknown, you know, who are the who are the next virtual reality filmmakers? Are they the young and aspiring film directors or are they the young and aspiring theatrical directors? And I, I would say from my experience with a bunch of these different media that theatre is the closest thing that you have to virtual reality and that a lot of the theatrical techniques and, and ways of telling stories in a, certainly in theatre in the round is the, the most comparable to sort of narrative storytelling in virtual reality. And, you know, I was right at the beginning of the process, at the beginning of our first day of rehearsals, I showed the company a 1912, I think, silent film of The Tempest. It was black and white. It was wobbly. The scenery was wobbly. There was a great tempest out there and a, and a big cardboard ship came across the screen. And, of course, we laughed at it. They didn't, I guess, laugh at it in 1912. But, you know, and maybe in a few years' time, we'll look back at the technology we're using in The Tempest today and going, wow, that was so, uh, is so 2000. 2016. <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, things move so fast, and I, I, I'm just pretty sure that that Shakespeare, for one, would have wanted to keep up with the, or any possibility to engage an audience and excite an audience. And our job is to keep that in balance with those exceptional words that he wrote. Well, thank you both of you for taking the time to walk us through this, and it was such fun talking thank with you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Come unto these yellow sands And then take hands Curtsied when you haven't kissed The wild waves wish Ben Lumsden is head of studio at the Imaginarium, a London-based digital effects house that specializes in animations for movies and video games. Gregory Duran is artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company. His production of The Tempest opens June 30th, 2017 for a seven-week run at the Barbican in London. My So Potent Art was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. We had help from the RSC's head of press, Philippa Harlan, 
from Ed Walker at Sounding Suite Studios in Stratford-upon-Avon, Marcia Caldwell and Melissa Kuypers at NPR West in Los Angeles, and Chris Charles at The Sound Company in London. We'd like to ask you a favor. If you've been enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, I hope you'll consider reviewing the podcasts on whatever platform you get the podcast from. It helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it, people who might enjoy it. We'd really appreciate your help. Thanks. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.